This episode is brought to you by EarthBreeze, the one New Year's resolution I've ever been able to stick to. It's completely transformed my laundry experience. Gone are the big, heavy plastic jugs, the measuring out of detergent every time. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze wash sheet. All I do is grab an EarthBreeze eco sheet. It looks just like a dryer sheet, except it's slightly less dry. It's ultra concentrated detergent. I throw it in the wash and that's it. Never think about it again. Laundry comes out great, clean, fresh smelling, no harmful chemicals or bleaches or dyes or anything in there. If you want to change up your laundry game this year, right now my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled, that's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Early in my career, I did a ton of reporting on the plastic problem, why there was so much of it, how the industry operated, the PR guys who created fake front groups for plastic manufacturers. It was a lot of the same stuff the oil and gas guys had done, which makes sense because it was mostly the same companies making plastic. But at a certain point, I shifted my focus away from plastic, partly because it seemed like a problem that was being solved. The public was aware of the problem. There were various alternatives to plastic being embraced. Even consumer behavior was changing. Now to California, where a new law will ban single-use plastic bags at grocery and convenience stores. Instead of buying a plastic tube of toothpaste, then throwing it away or recycling it, maybe... You can now buy toothpaste tablets that come in this little compostable paper package. It's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. I like that. In the Pacific Ocean. Contains plastic waste twice the size of Texas. That's big. And then a few years ago, I started to see more and more plastic everywhere. Restaurants, stores, my kids' school. And I wondered what had happened to shift the course of things so dramatically. Had I missed some kind of policy change? Had some celebrity said something pro-plastic? But it also jumped out at me because it was so similar to what had happened on climate change during the 90s. High public awareness, momentum toward change, and then boom, this complete shift of course. So I started looking into it. And the first place I looked was this sort of cartoonishly evil PR guy who had been the head of all of these pro-plastic campaigns when I'd looked into the issue before. His name was Rick Berman. His nickname is Dr. Evil, and I'm not joking. He's the guy who ran a ton of the PR campaigns for Philip Morris back in the day. The lead character in the movie Thank You for Smoking is based on him. I don't have an MD or law degree. I have a bachelor's in kicking butt and taking names. I get paid to talk. What do you talk about? I speak on behalf of cigarettes. My mommy says cigarettes kill. Now, is your mommy a doctor? No. Well, she doesn't exactly sound like a credible expert now, does she? 
Rick Berman has also targeted Mothers Against Drunk Driving for alcohol clients and the Humane Society for beef clients. How many alcohol-related deaths a year? Well, 100,000. That's what, 270 uh, a day? A tragedy. I front an organization that kills... So I had followed Berman a lot when I was reporting on plastic because he was working for all the plastic bag manufacturers and the food and beverage guys who all wanted to fight against plastic bag bans. Berman was the guy behind my all-time favorite fake grassroots group, the Save the Plastic Bag Coalition. They claimed to be a group of concerned citizens who loved plastic bags, I guess, but was actually one guy, paid by Rick Berman. So when I dove back in, in 2014, the first thing I did was Google Rick Berman. And I found a New York Times story. October 30th, 2014. About how Berman was suddenly very involved with natural gas companies and fracking. Hard-nosed advice from veteran lobbyist, win ugly or lose pretty. A speech he'd given in Colorado for a group of natural gas companies called the Western Energy Alliance had been leaked. Here's a little bit from it. I mean, and again, we've had a lot of ads on this thing. You get, you get in people's mind a tie. They don't know who's right. And you win all ties because the tie basically ensures the status quo. People are not prepared to get aggressive and moving one way or the other. So we, I'll take a tie any day if I'm trying to preserve the status quo. A tie is a win because that basically ensures the status quo. Wow. But also, what was Berman doing there? He had worked with every other industry before. Tobacco, alcohol, meat, chemicals. But weirdly, he had never worked for oil and gas. And now, here he was in one of the hubs of the fracking boom. Quick orientation on that front. Fracking is slang for hydraulic fracturing. It's a drilling process where you basically blast water and chemicals into shale rock at really high pressure, busting open the rocks and pumping out the gas or oil that's hiding inside of them. Around 2006, a few independent companies figured out how to do fracking economically. And the price of oil and gas made it smart to pursue. That kicked off a fracking boom, but around 2010, people in communities where fracking was happening had started to talk about how it was ruining their water. In some cases, making it flammable, a thing you don't really want your water to be. Then stories started to come out about the radioactive waste being generated by fracking. Yes, radioactive waste. Fracking had some pretty bad press going into that conference Berman was at in 2014. Neighbors in that Colorado town are feeling the heat as well. The groundwater there is apparently contaminated by natural gas. A Colorado homeowner is living in fear because their tap water is flammable. And the brine that these truckers are hauling, radium can be as high as 28,500. These levels are extraordinary. So it made sense that the industry would go looking for a hitman like Berman to save it. At the Western Energy Alliance conference, Berman was presenting on his latest campaign, 
big green radicals. An attempt to discredit the top three critics of fracking at the time, Sierra Club, NRDC, and Food and Water Watch. Here's Berman's colleague Jack Hubbard explaining more. So we thought, how are we going to kick off this campaign? Take the typical Berman and company model in terms of undermining these folks' credibility and diminish their moral authority. Ah, yes, the typical Berman and company model of undermining people's credibility and diminishing their moral authority. Berman's foray into the natural gas world got me wondering if fracking and gas were linked to the sudden resurgence of plastic. And then, over the next couple of years, I started to hear more about another problem with fracking, a natural gas glut. The story was that fracking companies had been so successful at getting gas out of shale rock that they were just kind of swimming in the stuff. It's very good at producing gas, but terrible at producing profits. This is Clark Williams Derry, an analyst with the Institute for Energy, Economics, and Financial Analysis, AIFA. And that's something that I, I think has actually been em, uh, emblematic of the shale industry as a whole, that it's an industry that's been phenomenally successful at producing oil and gas, but has been terrible at producing cash. The fracking industry actually never produced profits. But it did produce a lot of gas, and it needed to find a market for it. Here's Kingsmill Bond, an analyst with the nonprofit Carbon Tracker. With the fracking of gas, a lot of ethane and propane, and they're considerably cheaper as a feedstock than oil. And, you know, all these companies had the bright idea, well, let's turn this ethane into plastic, and then we can undercut our, our competitors, and we can make very high super profits. That's basically was the idea. Okay, so now it was starting to make some sense. Just a few years after public awareness of the plastic problem was peaking, fossil fuel companies realized if they could make plastic with the byproducts of fracking instead of with oil, they could solve the natural gas glut problem and supercharge their petrochemical profits. Again, remember, most of the companies making plastic or providing the building blocks of plastic are oil and gas companies. And here's where we get back to the involvement of Berman and his cronies. Thanks to some very clever messaging over the years, the general public has largely forgotten that plastic is made out of fossil fuels. But when you look at their websites, when you look at their communications to their business, they're very clear that they are all about plastics. And so this is an industry that's been very effective at, on the one hand, promoting the use of plastic resins across ever wider ranges of, of product streams and in ever, you know, ever more countries around the world. And on the other hand, keeping their own role in these processes largely invisible from the public. This is Carol Muffett president and CEO of the nonprofit Center for International Environmental Law. You know, the public, when they think about who produces plastic, they think about Procter & Gamble, they think about Starbucks, they think about Amazon. All of those are completely legitimate. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, the molecules going into that plastic are all coming from a handful of companies, and they have names like Exxon and Chevron and Shell. 
Oftentimes, those oil and gas companies own and operate the petrochemical facilities making plastic too, but they don't really advertise it. Exxon's big plastic factory in Louisiana, it's just called the Baton Rouge Plastics Company. Even when they're not making the plastic themselves, the connection is pretty direct between the oil and gas industry and plastic. In 2011, construction of a new pipeline began. It would run from the Eagle Ford Shale, one of the first big fracking plays in Texas, to a petrochemical plant on the Gulf in Callum County. That pipeline was fully operational by early 2013, supplying a plant owned by a little-known Taiwanese company called Formosa. I'm Amy Westervelt. Welcome to a new season of Drilled, the bridge to nowhere. We're tackling the natural gas industry this season, and we're doing something a little different. Instead of telling you one story over the course of several episodes, I'm going to tell you a few different stories about the natural gas industry. First up, plastic pipelines. That pipeline from the Eagle Ford Shale to the Formosa Plastics Plant, it's not alone. There's a very, very direct pipeline, direct connection between these two industries. Over the next few episodes, we're going to look at how the fracking boom led to a plastics boom through the story of Formosa Plastics on the Gulf Coast. Coming up right after this quick break. New Year's resolutions are almost destined to fail. I resolve almost every year to work less, and we all know it's not going to (laughs) happen. But one thing I have been able to stick to, and you can too, is switching up the way you do laundry in 2024 and grabbing Earth Breeze. I know you're thinking laundry is not so fun. Those huge, heavy plastic jugs measuring out the right amount, getting goo all over the place. It's annoying. EarthBreeze Eco Sheets totally changed the game. Unlike powder or liquid, EarthBreeze actually looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent. And it's super easy. You just throw it into your laundry and that's it. There's no measuring, there's no lugging anything around. Your laundry comes out clean. It smells great. I love it. It's genuinely made my life easier. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes. So it's perfect for every load. You'll never run out of detergent again, thanks to Earth Breeze's easy, flexible subscription. You can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Plus shipping is always free and Eco Sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. It also gets rid of one more plastic thing in your life. And the company has donated over 100 million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%. 440. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription. Environmental justice is a talking point in every politician's toolkit. But do you ever wonder where it all began? On this week's Throughline, 
we're taking you back to 1978, where a fight against a toxic dump in North Carolina started the environmental justice movement. Join NPR's Climate Week and listen to Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I've spent my whole life around the water. I've uh, been shrimping since I was eight years old. And even when I was smaller, when I was like four and five years old, my dad would come in from shrimping and all of us kids would go to the bay. And I I can remember going out in the bay and when you leave her early, you got uh, the spoonbills, you know, these these pink birds flying, they're coming up out of the marshes and you're going past the reefs and you're heading out into the bay. And it was... It was, it was beautiful, and it always kept that, that magic. And I think if I gave up on the bay, I would be giving up on the best part of myself. Meet Diane Wilson. She's a fourth-generation shrimp boat captain in Point Comfort, Texas. That was a clip of her from the documentary Texas Gold, but I got the chance to speak with her, too. For a while, I ran a shrimp house, and, you know, I think I handled about... 15 shrimp boats and I was it's a it's a it's an old tin building and it's right at the dock that shrimp house she ran the little tin building on the dock it basically processes all the shrimp for the shrimpers in the area so they go out fishing come back and Diane would sort of take it from there so I know all the comings and goings of the shrimpers and one day I had a uh, shrimper come in and he and he and this shrimper he he was a real nice-looking guy, and he had about three types of cancers, and he had these lumps all over. They were like tennis balls up and down his arm. And anyway, he threw this magazine at me, and uh, he wanted me to read it. And it was the first time the toxic release inventory ever came out. And our little county, Calvin County, I bet we didn't have 12,000 people in this county. We were number one in the nation for toxic disposal. We had half the waste generated in Texas was right here. And it's like, wow, it it, it blew my mind. It really did. Diane was shocked and worried about her little community. She describes herself as a, quote, genuine introvert. I am one of these people that doesn't like to speak. I don't like to be around crowds. I can remember when I was a child, hiding under a bed to get away from people. It was probably a reason why I was so good on the bay because there's a lot of solitude out there. But this seemed like something the community should really be talking about. But when I saw that article, I did something totally out of character. I walked down to City Hall and I said, I wanna have a meeting about this information. So apparently there's this little room at City Hall in Diane's town, and they let people use it for meetings. So she went in and booked that room. But then... I had the uh, city secretary, she come down there and she said, Diane, you you just got to not do this. And I'm like, "Uh, well, I'll, I'll do it in elementary school, in the cafeteria. And she said, 
no, Diane, you've got to, you've got to stop it completely. You can't do this. There's red flags. There's red flags. And I'm like, what red flags? Diane didn't understand what the problem was. But pretty soon, it wasn't just the secretary. It was local politicians and businessmen, too. The vice president, who I had never talked to in my life, come out on the dock and he said, Diane, are you trying to start a vigilante group to roast industry alive? Economic development called my brothers, and they told them to make me shut up and not have this meeting. They were trying everything to shut me up on just having a meeting. Diane thought this was all really weird. She had assumed the waste they were talking about in that toxic inventory was kind of old news. It was stuff that had been dumped back when there was a big Alcoa plant in the area. And that was part of it. But there was also new waste and a big industrial plant in town that was planning a major expansion. It was the biggest expansion in Texas history and the biggest in the United States in 10 years. And I mean... The governor, the senators, the, you name it, uh, even Phil Graham, who was running for president, everybody was pushing. They were going to give Formosa every single thing they wanted. Formosa, a Taiwanese petrochemical company, had been in the area since 1981, and now it was planning a $1.3 billion expansion. Someone had, uh, in the mail, sent me a letter. And in the letter was just these typed, simple words. It said, Miss Wilson, do you know this? And in it was the, uh, was you know, was a newspaper clipping in the back. You know, it's on the back pages of a newspaper. And it had uh, Promosa's uh, public notice for Promosa's air permit. And, uh, and I'm like, well, this is something I can do for the first meeting of this new little group. Diane's been fighting the company ever since, mostly with the help of whistleblowers who worked at the Formosa plant. There's no unions. There's no safety. And you will get fired if you open your mouth. And they did not trust uh, TCEQ, the state agency. They didn't trust EPA. And they didn't, definitely did not trust OSHA. They thought that was nothing but a way to get them fired to tell wow. them anything. And so who was on the bottom of the list? It was me. And so they came to me. And that's where I really got the information. In 1993, when Formosa expanded, it bought 500 residents out of their homes and took over the town's school. Formosa's got all their houses. Uh, the school shut down. There's no school. Formosa is using the school for a training center now. So it's Formosa's town. But over a decade, Diane kept building her case, often meeting with Formosa workers out of town because they were worried about getting fired or a retaliation of some kind. They told her about Formosa cutting corners, dumping chemicals and plastic pellets into the ocean, burning off toxic chemicals through their smokestacks, and generally not implementing appropriate safety measures. 
Diane spent three years collecting plastic pellets that Formosa had dumped into the bays and waterways around its Port Comfort facility. I would get in a kayak and go up and down all 10 of their outfalls, and, and sometimes that would take me like five or six hours. I was all day long going up and down that thing, kayaking and taking all these pictures. At the time when she was going out in her kayak all day, Diane was in her late 60s. And in 2017, she took Formosa to court. Just down the Gulf Coast from Houston lies an enormous plastics plant, one of the nation's biggest. It's been a driving force in the local economy, and now it's expanding with promises of new jobs and tax revenue. But a handful of coastal residents are suing the plant, claiming it's polluted the waters in their region for years. After fighting the company for decades, in 2019, Diane had a big win. Last year, Formosa agreed to pay $50 million to settle a lawsuit in which it agreed to zero discharge of pellets. A federal judge called Formosa a serial offender. It was the largest settlement granted in a citizen lawsuit in U.S. history. And we got $50 million for environmental projects, and we put... $20 $20 million into a, a sustainable fishery co-op for the local fishermen. But Diane isn't retiring her kayak just yet. Her group is staying on top of Formosa to make sure it complies with the court ruling. And she's been talking to activists down the coast a bit in Louisiana. They're trying to prevent Formosa from building a plant there. She's hoping that what she's learned over the past 30 years might help them do the one thing she couldn't. My only regret, my only regret is that I did not try hard enough to keep them out. Is they need to try everything to keep them out. They do not want Formosa in there. We'll bring you that story next time. Next week on Drilled. It would be too much toxic in the air for us to breathe. We will not live. That's why I'm fighting for my life and the life of my community. It's the single largest proposed source that we've been tracking of greenhouse gas emissions in the country. Certainly, I don't think there's any way you can divorce what's happening now in terms of the siting of these facilities and who's bearing the biggest burden from the history of slavery in that, in that area. It's all, there's a straight line connecting it all. Drilled is an original production of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. The show is reported, written, and hosted by me, Amy Westervelt. Our producer this season is Juliana Bradley. Our editor is Julia Ritchie. Our theme song this season is Death Song by B. Beeman. Additional music for the season composed by Elliot Peltzman. Our artwork for the season is done by Matthew Fleming. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton at the First Amendment Project. 
You can find additional reporting and photos for this season on our Twitter feed at We Are Drilled or online at drillednews.com. If you're a fan of the show, please consider supporting us in two ways. One, if you want to spend some money and get some extra bonus content and early episodes, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash drilled. You can also support us by giving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps us find new listeners and combat the army of climate denier trolls that are constantly trying to tank our ratings. Thanks for doing that, and we'll see you next week.